Welcome to Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. I'm the aforementioned DP, your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee, your other co-host. So, as you know by now, we like to take a sometimes serious, sometimes irreverent, and sometimes cynical look at the business of sports. On occasion, we hope we're entertaining and maybe every once in a while make you say, wait, what? Before we get along with the show, we want to mention that we are adding a new segment to the show on this episode, one that furthers, Tim, our educational mission of wait, what? Um, and so we want you uh, to be sure to suck it up and listen for the entire episode. Uh, we think you'll enjoy it at the end. Uh, uh, it's something that uh, is important to both of us. So we just had the biggest day in sports. We have a whole slew of events, big events again coming up this weekend. Um, and uh, all kinds of other storylines that are going on in the business of sports. So, Tim, take your pick. What's on your mind? Well, I think we have to uh, talk about the Super Bowl from last weekend, and particularly uh, what we uh, what we predicted last week. Um, let's let's just say that uh, I'm getting it out of the way now and ripping off that bandaid. <laughs> That's very smart of you. I like it. Let's see. I think. You again, you get very specific with your predictions, which I entirely respect, by the way. Uh, wrong or not, I respect that. <laughs> go so big or go home. Right, right. You picked the Bengals and you picked I, the Bengals and you made a call out to Joe Burrow doing I don't know what, but the Rams did win it. And so I was right on that one. I, I uh, if I, I do recall, so I won't play coy and say if I recall, I, re, I predicted Bengals 24 21. And yes, I was wrong, but I will say this in my defense, EA did a simulation through uh, their Madden game and came up with the exact same prediction. So I am in good company. Wrong company. Whatever whatever helps you sleep, man. I I get it. That's great. That's great. The score was pretty close. Obviously, you know, the, uh, um, you know, listen, it ended up being a pretty good game. And then, of course, the other thing we talked about was the number of people that would view it. We said the over/under was a hundred million. I think you said you'd go under, right? Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Um, and it it ticked over. Linear viewership was just over one hundred and one million. I said it would be below one hundred and one million, but over a hundred hundred million. And but and you tell me, I make specific. Yeah, no, I get, I, I, I get specific on like weird stuff. You get specific on actual stuff that people actually are more interested in from a betting standpoint and things like that. Um, yeah, that was just to answer you. I, I didn't want to leave you <laughs> hanging with your specific predictions. Uh, total viewership was 112.3 when you factor in um, the streaming, which apparently set a record as well, So uh, or set a record. Uh, and then 1.9 of those viewers were were linear on Telemundo, which was a record for a Spanish language uh, broadcast. So, uh, so overall, I think everybody is ha- pretty happy. NBC, the NFL, uh, and all the other parties that are involved in the sport, and and uh, and also the the monobob competitors. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> the monobob. That was uh, you know in the past. It's been like Chicago PD or This Is Us. There's been some sort of big tentpole network primetime show, but they showed, they went to Beijing and showed the monobob, the first ever uh, 
single person bobsled race they, and where the Americans took first and second. I know we will say it again. We have a global audience, so we will be respectful of that. Uh, but the Americans did take uh, uh, gold and silver. They did. That was actually uh, that was actually pretty cool for sure uh, to see a gold and silver on the U.S. team. There obviously have been some pretty good stories starting to come out and we'll we'll hit on those in a second. Uh, but yeah, the the lead in obviously is always a great thing. And it was by far the best night that the Olympics had mm -hmm. uh, following up right on NBC. They had Mike Tirico ready to go. That dude is working hard, by the way. One of the nicest people and yep. one of the hardest working people in sports. Yeah, yeah that was impressive. So the advertising front, got to touch on that. What were your thoughts? Apparently, we all drive electric cars that were paid for with crypto. That was my take. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I think I tweeted that I'm not sure if I'm going to invest in crypto, but I'm going with the company that Larry David uh, endorses because he's yeah, never thought, wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was a that was a nice spot. It actually did a a traditional arc of a of a you know a humorous ad. It kind of took you through this interesting story and then came around to explain why that platform was a, was a good one to do. And, and Larry David, I think, was a pretty good spokesperson for that. I know you and I have a bit of a disagreement on the Coinbase ad mm -hmm. and whether it was effective. Um, uh, and I think, you know, I think all the stories of making consumers work too hard or was it confusing are right. Results ultimately matter in this. So, so I will say that a QR code floating around in a Pong style with a uh, instrumental version of the song Money Going in the Background did seem peculiar. Uh, I'm not the fastest guy in the world. Uh, it took me a second to pick it up, but I did pull out my phone and I went. So I was one of those uh, millions of people uh, that did get to the site before it crashed, apparently. Um, so they did have some issues with that. But I think they elevated themselves, if the stories are accurate, to the number two downloaded app uh, because of that. And if you go back to that conversation we had about the master lock ad, you'd say maybe that was maybe that was money well spent. Listen, this is a this is a uh, a category now that's probably thinking about it in uh, you know a rising tide raises all boats, lifts all boats uh, here to get people really understanding what these platforms are like. But that was very specific, getting people to their exchange. Listen, in retrospect, I think I was wrong, right? Because if you judge a effectiveness of, of an ad by the call to action and response to that call to action, it was tremendously successful. I just don't know if spending $7 million plus was the best way to accomplish that, especially if you weren't prepared um, on the back end to handle all of that web traffic. Now, there's a, there's a cynical view that says that, you know, the, the, the site crashed on purpose to show how popular it was. Um, you know, but then again, but then again, I, I, I still wonder who was at the grassy knoll. We, we do say we sometimes take a cynical look, right? right. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> um, well, listen, they definitely put themselves, uh, uh, in the news. I mean, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes. This is a, a big gamble in a lot of ways, uh, to get out there and make sure that you're part of this storytelling after the, before the game. And after the game, and it's not it's not easy to do and takes a lot of planning. Um, the ad is just one big piece of this. You know, in USA Today's ad meter is one of the standards that people in our business like to go back and take a look at. I noticed that the uh, JB Smoove ads, uh, Caesars ads, 
uh, didn't necessarily rank that high. Maybe people had seen him too much out there. I'm not sure. I actually thought they were the one that was run on the game was quite good and funny. But more importantly, I think they did a very good job of, of putting a lot of other things around this, the events that they held in conjunction with the Mannings. Uh, I'm very curious to see where first-time betters on the game were were what they were downloading and where they were, what platform they were betting on, because I do think Caesars did a pretty good job. Some of their competitors had done some local advertising rather than buying a $7 million ad on the Super Bowl. So it's going to be interesting to see where the traffic went. I do know that the handle was quite significant, as I'm sure you've seen as well across the board. And New York, New York is just crushing it still. Yeah. I, I, can, I come from, you know, an industry, the wireless industry, where at the time I was involved was, very similar in that um, it was all about market share and, you know, companies like my employer, AT&T, and before that Singular and the other players in the space were spending a lot of money um, because capturing that consumer and multiplying, you know, however many you could get by the average lifetime value, it starts to make an investment in the Super Bowl look, you know, pretty smart potentially. And so, yeah, I think your your point's well taken. It, it will be very interesting to see what what those numbers look like, you know, a month, three months from now in terms of who's got the biggest market share among those players. Right. You know, I thought there were some other really good spots. You know, one one ad that runs by a certain, you know, certain advertiser every year in the Super Bowl that doesn't get as much mention as some of the other brand spots because I think people just look at it as an institutional ad and that's the NFL. I think what the NFL put out with the video game turning into real life and the kids mm-hmm. playing it, I think they, I think they hit a home run. Not to, not to, you know, cross uh, cross reference sports there when talking about football, but I think they always do a pretty nice job with that spot. And this year, showing kids interacting with uh, with these legends and current players, I thought was another fantastic spot and effort by the NFL. Uh, I, th- I think you're right, and I think we. We being sports fans, not people necessarily in the sports business, but sport fan, sports fans take for granted um, that everybody's watching the NFL during the season. And, and, uh, and on that particular day, they're not. So if they can, you know, appeal to a, an audience that otherwise may not watch a regular season football game, then it's it's money well spent. You know, I think it's an important point because the, the Super Bowl audience is completely different than the regular season audience. I mean, the regular season ratings are obviously very good and the NFL had another great year, but those are the football fans watching their home team or watching because they want to watch Monday night football or Sunday night football or Thursday night football because there's nothing better to them to watch. But the Super Bowl is an entirely different animal, as we know. So this idea, and and that that suggests why the advertising in-game is so much more expensive uh, than on pregame, which while there are sponsors and some great programming for the football fan, that stuff's for the fan, the person that wants to get a little uh, in-depth look. While, you know, that's the time other people are finishing up their, you know, getting prepped for the day uh, mm-hmm. type of thing. So it's it, it does, I think, show you just how important uh, and why the, why the time in-game uh, is so much more expensive. But when you look at somebody like a Pizza Hut, who spends extensively in the pregame show, it's a brilliant spend, right? Because that's when you're starting to place those phone or online orders to get the food delivered for your Super Bowl party. Yeah. Uh, so it's, 
it may be a lot less expensive, but it can be every bit as effective in reaching a, a, a target audience that you want to impact. Yeah, I think it's all about strategy and making sure that you're as efficient as possible with uh, with the spend. I mean, listen, I think we all could point back over time and say there are ads that were dropping simply because the ego of the ad agency and wanting to be in it and the awards that might come from it. Um, but, you know, you're right, whether it's post-game, pre-game or doing local buys in your key markets. Again, it's all about strategy thinking through what you're doing and how far, who are you trying to reach and how can you make the most efficient buy you possibly can and get the messaging right to reach those people. Yeah. One other thing I'd like to touch upon and during the, talking about the pregame is last week, for those of you who listened and for those of you who didn't, you feel free to go back. We were a little bit concerned about bringing up the Brian Flores issue, especially in light of the fact that we had a guest from the NFL. Um, I think we handled it tactfully. I think we handled it honestly um certainly not as journalists do but um i think our fear or, or our concern was unfounded because when you look at the pregame show and and the amount of time they spent on the situation i think uh the folks at nbc did a great job of covering that that story um i will say that one of the things that we brought up which is that one of the biggest indicators of whether somebody becomes a head coach is if they are a coordinator specifically an offensive coordinator um, we talked about that, and they talked about the fact that there's not opportunities for uh, coaches of color to ascend to even the coordinator level, which is what's probably holding them back as much as anything else. Um, but I do think that the NFL now is showing that they take that subject seriously. So hopefully, we'll see some demonstrable change. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was great. They they did take it very seriously, and they went around the horn, right? And everybody got a chance to talk, and you know, hearing. Hearing someone like Tony Dungy speak to the speak to the issue and things that could change, and talking about timelines and things like that, uh, we'll see. I, I mean, I do expect that there there will be some some changes that come down because whatever side you're on 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 this, as it relates to Brian Flores, you know, the idea of if if the league says this is what we want to do and what they want to do isn't happening, which we, you know, the it's clearly not. not um, so what are you going to change? And that's what I think we're going to have to uh, have to see moving forward. And um, I love I love Tony Dungy's recommendation, right? Put a moratorium on interviewing and hiring until after the Super Bowl. Um, I understand why teams don't want to do that, but his his point is you know spot on, which is most of the top uh, candidates are in the playoffs, and yeah. you know you're almost put at an advantage if your team is knocked out early. Yeah. Um, you know, when you look at, you know, you look at last year where you had, uh, you know, Byron Lefwich um, and uh, who was the other one? Eric Bieniemy, right? The two, two great minds. Neither one is still is still coaching in the NFL. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think that is a was a great point. I I, I can sense or I would I could predict that there will be some pushback among the owners on that type of recommendation. I think it's going to take really serious leadership from the commissioner and the league itself, which is hard sometimes. I mean, he in essence works for the, for the, for the owners. Uh, but yeah, I think we're going to get some pushback, but it, it's too logical not to explore uh, because it absolutely is a hindrance to it. No right. Because I guarantee you that there are coaches who woke up yesterday more well, coaches for the last few weeks have been looking at their draft boards and 
thinking about, you know, who are we going to be looking at the combine and who are we going to put up on our, our board and move people around. And the earlier you have somebody in position, the easier it is for you to ostensibly be ready to, to draft somebody in April now. Um, right. So, you know, that's where the pushback comes from. And I think if they do make that move, then you got to worry about things like tampering, right? Uh, right, but, right. But let's address one problem at a time. Yeah. So NFL is over. We do have some football coming back in April with the with the new USFL. Uh, NBA All-Star Game on Sunday. Daytona 500 in front of a sold-out crowd, apparently, which is just mm-hmm. a, a remarkable comeback from an attendance standpoint, given COVID and everything else that the sport's been through. So all kinds of exciting things. I do want to touch base uh, on the Olympics because I think some great storylines have, I guess, finally started coming through. This last week has been interesting. The the Nathan Chen gold medal performance in the men's figure skating, I thought was uh, dramatic and exciting and a credit to him to bounce back after his last Olympics uh, where he was expected to to win and get in. And I just, I mean, that, that, that to me is just such a gutsy performance to go out and perform that long format in front of the world and just nail it, uh, all the pressure on him. And, and it was just, it just made me feel good. What can I say? Yeah. The combat, the combination of, of artistry and athleticism, right. You see it in figure skating and, and gymnastics, but I can't think of another sport where you have to be that good at both of those things right right it's it was intense it was hard it was hard not to like go but he came through um a couple other americans i tell you what i think uh i think uh lindsey jacob ellis could be a an ambassador for us i think you know coming back after what she went through uh some some years ago and to and to get her gold and not only that get a second gold along with nick bumgartner um, both 80s babies. Uh, it was mm-hmm. uh, it was great to see, and and I was so happy for her. Uh, it really is kind of the story about what Olympics are all about. She persevered, she came back, and she she crushed it. Yeah, and then Nick Baumgartner. If you saw that interview with him after his first event, where he was just crestfallen, and and uh, to see him come back, and you know that to to go back to our youth um, and the wide world of sports, right? The agony and the ecstasy. You know the, the, you know the thrill of what is it the, uh, the thrill of competition, thrill of victory, the agony, and the agony of, of defeat, uh, the agony. I'm I'm going way back to uh, <laughs> to the Sistine Chapel with the agony and the ecstasy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the um, you know, I, coming out of the Super Bowl, obviously with that great mm-hmm. night for the broadcast and some of these stories coming out, we have we have you know women's gold medal hockey game uh, coming up between U.S. and Canada. Uh, hopefully some, you know, they'll drive some ratings. The situation with the positive drug test for the young uh, Russian skater, I, I hope doesn't mar uh, people watching um, uh, as, you know, most of our listeners who are very knowledgeable people will know that the, uh, that the board decided to let her go ahead and skate pending, you know, final ruling on this. Um, the, the, I'm a little torn on this. I know a lot of people, including uh, uh, Sarah Hirschland at the uh, USOPC, has come out strong against the ruling to let her to continue to skate. Um, and the, the the skater we're talking about is uh, Camila Valieva. Um, Wait, what? 
Yeah, I, I I wanted to make sure I got her name right. And not I, only did you get it right, you 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 did it with a, t- a touch of a Russian accent. Yeah, I stu- I stu- I studied Mike Tarika this weekend. He was he was he nailed it. I'm like I got to say it like him. Um, she's 15 years old. Yeah, and I, I do feel bad for her. Um, I'm not sure I agree with the with the ruling from the court of arbitration that that came out to say let her skate, but. She's 15. The issue is with the with the with the Russian Olympic Committee, um, and that they keep kicking this can down the road with them. I mean, you know, they you know in in Pyeongchang where they where they competed as Olympic athletes from Russia or OAR, not to be confused with the with the kind of indie band. Um, <laughs> but and then they I guess complained, and they're now back as Russia Olympic Committee. Right, but they're not uh, flying under the Russian flag because it goes back to past doping scandals. So, well, you know, but fool me once. Is, clear, right, right. They're, so they're not under the flag, but they're R- Russia Olympic Committee. Um, so it's a I, distinction without a difference or a difference correct. without it, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Whatever so clearly that, whatever, whatever that they've done um, hasn't necessarily stopped this from happening. And, and hopefully someone i doubt it will be any sort of you know internal investigation gets to the bottom of what it is that's what's going on but it is a 15 year old skater who was predicted to win anyway well that's the thing that bothers me most is she's predicted to win okay and if they've already said that if she medals which is a high likelihood of happening they will not have a medal ceremony so think about the other two young women who would be on that podium whether in silver, bronze, or gold positions, don't have that capstone to all their training, all their preparation, and ultimately their performance in these Beijing games. That's absolutely tragic in my estimation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's an absolute horrible situation all the way around. Uh, I was a little shocked that I saw Dick Pound, the very hawkish anti-doping, former head of the World Anti-Doping Organization, um, say that he thought it was the best possible solution um, because of how messy it is, how young she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, listen, I think it came down to the age and that was it. If she had been over 16 or over, I mean, that's the cutoff line, it seems to me. Right. Um, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that a woman that age performing at that level has a heart problem that would entail needing heart right. medication. But right. just a, just a random thought before we move on. Um, if we do, uh, if we're fortunate enough to get uh, Dick Pound as a as a guest at one point, should we change it to Wait Wada? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I'll see myself out. We we <laughs> you'll be here all week. <laughs> Try to get chip the waitresses. Um, before we go off of the subject, I, I'm curious. I mean, this is the kind of thing when we talk about the Olympics, and we've talked to people that are inside the Olympic movement, and Chris Pepe and Gary Placino on this show. And you and I have a, you know, have an affinity for this, this event um, and what it can mean for athletes and peace and all those things. But what does this do from a sponsor standpoint, um, particularly among the top sponsors, the IOC top sponsors? Um, you know, that, that this is this just going to obviously continue? Is Russia going to be a, a, a thorn in the side or other countries just going to go back to saying, well, obviously they're doing it and not being penalized uh, and therefore just kind of, you know, screw the entire situation. Uh, and then what does that mean to to sponsors looking for this as the the ideal that 
the IOC likes to say it is? I, I think it's safe to assume that most sponsors on the national level as well as the top level are not unhappy to see the games end in Beijing with an eye towards Paris in 2024, right? Uh, number one. Number two, um, listen, I, I, I am I am all about purity in sports, at least as it relates to performance enhancing drugs. Uh, I think the issue with the Russian Olympic Committee needs to be addressed, but this is, as far as I know, the only situation in which an athlete from that team is being accused of using performance enhancing drugs. So is it a rogue coach? Is it a rogue sport? Is it a rogue individual? Or is it systemic to the Russian uh, Olympic movement? And I think that's something that organizations like the IOC and WADA are going to have to look into, um, you know, over the next two plus years before we head into, into Paris. But a lot of people would argue that they have been looking into that and they have shown over quadrennium to quadrennium, it seems as though it appears to be a bit systemic. But you are right. We only know this one instance in this particular game. So is everything right. cleaned up at this particular athlete's coach? We'll have to see. I just hope we get a clean investigation. Pardon the, the expression there tying into that. Yeah. And I think, listen, you can't you can't continue to punish uh, an organization or individuals for past transgressions if if they've served the punishment that's meted out for those, right? So the argument can be made that the Russian Olympic Committee is paying its paying its penance for past transgressions. Uh, and now we've got to see if there's new ones or, or if there have been continued to be abuses of the system. But, um, you know, sponsors, broadcasters, athletes, organizing committees, uh, and certainly last but not least, fans have to feel that it's a level playing ground um, in the Olympic Games, as it is, as they as they look for in any sport. Listen, like in anything else, the situation absolutely should be fair. And if they are doing everything right, they should be treated fairly as well. But they have enough past transgressions to suggest that they need to have an eye kept on them, is, is, is how I would say it. Yeah, no, I, I think they've lost... Right. The right to expect the benefit of the doubt. That's for right. sure. Right. Okay. Like we said, lots of stuff going on, still going on, about to go on uh, this weekend. Let's take a quick break. So it's time for a new segment on the show we call Ask DP and McGee, where we will field questions on Twitter, by the way, at DP and McGee. That's at DP McGee. We'll field them from current sports business students from college sports business programs. The first up for this first time we're doing this uh, segment are students from DePaul University's Driehaus Business School and the sports business program led by a good friend of mine, Andy Clark. Now the program's website says the DePaul sports program major will prepare you to succeed in the ever evolving sports industry. And that's the marketing line they put on there and it's fine and it's accurate and it's great. But I will tell you this from having taught in some of Andy's classes uh, and knowing the work that Andy is doing, this program's doing some, some really good work and, uh, and I couldn't be more proud of what Andy has built there. He's someone I go back with to our early days of uh, DePaul when I was the assistant SID and he was the ticket manager. Uh, but with programs like Behind the Scenes with Chicago Sports Organizations and his London trip, 
what he's built there obviously has been very uh, impressive. And he's placed a lot of talent uh, out in the uh, sports business. Um, one guy in particular, Wahaj Tariq, who's now at the Detroit Pistons as the director of marketing operations. Uh, Wahaj actually worked for uh, Inrini's group as, uh, uh, as part of a prep program uh, that he did uh, uh, with the NFL. So um, just very impressed with some of the, some of the uh, students that are coming out and the program is doing. Is there something you'd like to know? Is there something you'd like to know? Ask us and we'll answer it on this show. We pulled a couple of questions off of, uh, of Twitter and we'll kind of take a ta- tackle on them. Uh, first one comes from Olivia Solomine. And I hope I pronounced that name, that last name right, Olivia. Now that sports betting is taking off, what do you think about the cannabis industry breaking into the sports industry? And when do you think we'll see cannabis sponsorships in the leagues? There's a couple of things at play here that while there's obviously a lot more acceptance of cannabis um, state by state, uh, as well as just a general acceptance of it in the number of products that are out, I do think it's going to be a little while before we see sponsorship. And part of that is that it's still from a federal level, it's still illegal And while the Biden administration has said they are going to look into that, uh, they haven't moved, to my knowledge, uh, on that. So I do think it might take a little bit. I know that the NFL uh, has looked into doing some studies uh, to see if see what the effect positive and negative uh, on on the usage is. And I think that will be something where if if things come back well and the federal law changes, um, that you will start taking a look at these on a team level first before we get to to a league level. I will say that the the strength of the crypto market on sponsorship and the strength of the sports betting on sponsorship has made it a little less urgent that cannabis be turned into a sponsorship category but i do think at some point if those other things do take place that we'll we'll start seeing some sponsorship in the in that area whether for you know full out you know marijuana use uh or or you know cbd type of uh sponsorships I agree. I think it's going to take some time. I think it's going to take, as you said, it's going to take some movement on the federal level to ensure that nobody's running afoul of those laws, number one. Number two, you've got to reach a tipping point of the number of states where it's been legalized in order for it to make sense on a league-wide level. Uh, And number three, there's a certain stigma that's attached to it, right? It's a sin brand. Um, But I think, you know, if you look up until a few years ago, most teams and leagues wouldn't take hard liquor ads. Uh, they, they overcame that. Uh, I think what drives it is what drives everything else in our industry, which is the revenue potential. And, you know, what you say is true, right? The, the money spent by crypto companies has given a lot of properties um, some breathing room. But if you're a sales guy, guess what? Um, your number next year is going to be higher, right? And your number the year after that is going to be higher. And that's the way it goes. And so you've got to find new revenue streams and bigger sponsors and more activation on platforms for sponsors to spend with. And so I think it's only a matter of time and it might be a couple of years. Um, But I think, uh, you know, I think that we will see certainly CBD and, and eventually cannabis sponsorships. If you have Snoop and if you have Snoop in a halftime show, how far behind can cannabis sponsorships be? There were some people that saw that picture of Snoop, you know, what appeared to be him 
taking a hit off a joint before he before he went on saying, "Just well, taking the edge off." That, well, that ruined, you and I are performers. That ruined that ruined, <laughs> that ruined it for me. Like that was a bad time. Well, you snoop. It's right. snoop. I, mean, I would have been. Yeah, it would have ruined it for me if I saw him drinking like you know chamomile. <laughs> but you know, right. you and I we're we're performers, right? So we understand right. what it's like to get the jitters before right. that red light goes on. Right, right. <laughs> to a, to a global audience also. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All no, right, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw this next one out to you. It comes from Kennedy Pettengill. And uh this is something I think I've seen you talk about before, but it's it asks the question asks for international expansion, how will the NFL segment segment based on team or conference? I don't think they'll do it in the traditional way uh geographically like for example if they expand to europe first i don't think those those teams will necessarily be in the eastern conference because they're closest to the east coast teams um the exception to that might be if they do place a, a franchise in mexico city because it would only make sense uh, to be playing in the western conference um i think it will there'll be a lot of give and take with owners and a lot of it will come down to where the current NFL teams have secured international marketing rights. So, for example, if a club has international marketing rights in Germany, um, you might want to put it in the same division um, as the Frankfurt team to start to create uh, probably not, it's probably too, too much of a stretch to say a, a natural rivalry, but a rivalry that um, works on the level of that existing team already having a presence in, in the German market. And so competing against the Frankfurt team or the Hamburg team or the Munich team or whatever it happens to be um, would seem to be a natural fit in that instance. Yeah, I'm gonna follow up on that because uh, there's another question that's somewhat related to that from Ashley Gimbel and asks, do you think that more NFL games being played outside of the United States could negatively impact American viewership and fanship. And, and here's how I'll start an answer on that. The, the short answer is no, I don't. I think it's just a matter of what is the breaking point or what is the tipping point, I should say, on number of games. We went to 17 games this year and that did nothing but get people more excited. And it, it obviously was a very good season for the NFL. Uh, I think the metrics are there to watch to see where those where the, where that is. You know, those games, the, the international games come on at obviously different times, uh, aren't going to necessarily do the, you know, do the ratings. But as long as they're good in the home markets and people are finding time to tune in, the good that happens from playing international games or that could come from it uh, is going to outweigh any even slight concern that they may have of oversaturation uh, and dwindling returns. Uh, on the viewership, but I just don't think it's going to impact. I think it has a chance to grow it overall. Listen, you know, the NFL is the is the biggest sports property we have here in the U.S. There are still some limitations to its international reach, as we know, where other sports, uh, you know, have a have an upper hand. Uh, but it's not for lack of effort. And, you know, and their push is going to continue to be to try to get players playing in different places uh, that could eventually play in the NFL. So I, I think overall it's it's way more positive uh, and the slight chance of any negative kind of slipping uh, from a rating standpoint is, is nothing that they're thinking about right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the one thing they have to be careful about is that if you look back over the last several years, those Thursday night packages 
haven't always delivered the audiences that people expected them to deliver. Um, I, I refer to it as as the um, uh, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire effect, right? If you remember that show from the early two thousands with Regis Philbin. It came on one night a week and it was absolutely gangbusters. So they said, well, if one night's good, two nights better. Right. And two nights was gangbusters. And then when they started putting it on the third and the fourth night, it saturated the market and, and the, the decline was fairly swift at that point. So as long as they're not putting these games on Wednesdays or Tuesdays, um, you know, I, they were Friday nights. I think I think they should be fine. Right. Yeah, no, it it is interesting, but that you know that's what television ratings and various other studies that show these metrics are available pretty quickly to see see where they're going. And it will be interesting on Thursday. Uh, I'm assuming that Amazon has a pretty good commitment to get pretty good quality games throughout the season uh, on Thursday nights. Um, obviously, there's the challenge about how many times people can play. So uh, we we will have to see. But I, I think they're coming off such a strong position right now that. Uh, um, that it's it's a good time to you know push this even a little further, uh, and we'll see what where the numbers go. Yeah, um, I will I know. will say these questions that came in from these uh, DePaul students they were they were um, you know they were really uh, well thought out questions right they were not um, they were not simplistic in any way so kudos to the students at DePaul. Yeah, uh, agreed, agreed, and and thank you to all of those that put in questions. Uh, on the Twitter account, on our Twitter page, DP and McGee. Um, and uh, and like to give a special thanks, of course, to uh, uh, Andy Clark for, um, uh, for putting this word out to his students. So lots of stuff going on. Uh, any, any final thoughts here, Tim, as we close out episode six? Well, uh, a couple of things. One, I want to give a shout out to Jennifer Karf at the National Sports Marketing Network. She was kind enough to... Uh, help promote the podcast. I think you can say in, uh, in uh, some ways we have our first sponsor. So thanks to Jen and all she does for the industry through the National Sports Marketing Network. It's at www.sportsmarketingnetwork.com. So if, uh, if you're somebody who's looking to break into the industry or you're new in the industry, um, Jen works tirelessly for uh, all of us. Check it out. Yeah, big thanks, Jen. Appreciate it. Uh, Tim. What's what you got? Uh, what you got your eye on this week? Well, I've uh, already set the DVR because I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to stay up tomorrow night. Um, gold medal game starts shortly after 11 o'clock Wednesday night. Uh, USA versus Canada. Uh, Canada beat the U.S. in a preliminary round four to two. But I think the most telling statistic, um, they've outscored their opponents by uh, 54 to eight throughout this tournament. Um so uh, they're going to give the U.S. everything they can handle, and hopefully the U.S. will give Canada everything they can handle. But I, I do fully expect it to be an exciting game, as it is virtually every time these two teams meet up. There are two events coming up this weekend that are two of my favorite weekends of the, of the sports marketing year, I'll say, and that's the Daytona 500 and the NBA All-Star Game, which will be in Cleveland this year. Um, we're going to have some guests coming up in future episodes that are tied very much to these two very significant events. And they not they don't just mean a lot in the sports landscape as fans for fans, but they really are significant from a, uh, a sports marketing uh, standpoint because of the brands that are associated with these and how important these events are 
uh, to the brands that are associated with these various leagues, NASCAR and, and NBA in this case. So uh, I'm, I, I love this weekend. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to catching it all. That's great. Yeah, it's a great weekend for sports. All right. So we've wrapped up another episode of Wait, What? As always, David, it's great talking with you. And we will see you next week. Take care, everyone.